I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 5th, 2017. On this week's show, Marcus Thompson of the Mercury News will join us to talk about the Golden State Warriors' dominance in the first two games of the NBA Finals and whether there's anything LeBron James, the rest of the Cleveland Cavaliers, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, or Rihanna can do about it. We'll also be joined by Bruce Arthur of the Toronto Star for a conversation about the Stanley Cup Final, which is being at least partly contested in Nashville for some reason and has involved an increasing number of airborne, ice-bound catfish. Finally, Sadie Stein will be here to assess Mr. Met, the baseball-headed mascot of the New York Metropolitan's Baseball Club, who, in a fit of peak last week, gave a fan the finger. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. I'm not giving you the finger, Josh. On Sunday night in Oracle Arena, Steph Curry scored 32 points with 11 assists and 10 rebounds, his first triple-double ever in the playoffs, while Kevin Durant scored 33 with 13 boards, 6 assists, and 5 blocks in the Golden State Warriors' 132-113 route over the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Warriors are now up 2-0 in the NBA Finals, just like they were in 2016. The difference this time being that Curry is playing like the two-time MVP, and they have Durant. And it looks like the way they're going now, they won't be blowing a 2-0 lead or a 3-1 lead or any kind of lead. They're 14-0 in the playoffs and treating LeBron James and the Cavaliers the way the Cavs treat the rest of the Eastern Conference. The Cavs look like the goddamn Raptors right now, is what I'm saying. Joining us now to discuss is Marcus Thompson, who's a columnist for the Mercury News and the author of the book Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry. That title is looking good now. Marcus, how are you? I th- man, I think you need to hold up because you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Somebody's going to get suspended. It's it, like all kind of mess can happen. There's mouthpieces flying. Yeah. 
you got to hold There's LeBron James on the other team. Right. LeBron, LeBron, LeBron is not just a great player, but he's also like great at manipulating situations. He, what if he gets Kevin Durant to just punch him in the mouth? I can't say it won't happen. So what we've seen so far, the difference, I would say, um, between the Warriors this year and, um, and previous years in the playoffs is that they can have a guy be totally off and it just doesn't matter. Like with Clay Thompson in game one, shot three for 16, um, and it was just irrelevant. I mean, Clay obviously played great defense, so it wasn't like he was just useless on the floor. But when you have four All-Stars, when, you know, two of them are two of the best, very few players in the league, and the other two are Draymond and Clay, it just feels like there's nothing that LeBron can do, at least after watching the first two games. I mean, he looks like he feels that way, right? He does. <laughs> Third quarter, he see him go to the bench. He's looking he, like he can't breathe. And he's looking like, dang, what did I get myself into? It's really crazy. I think the difference last year was Steph was, you know, not full, fully healthy and didn't play well those last three games. He plays well in one of those games, especially in game seven, the Warriors are champions. So not only do they have a better Steph who's healthy, on top of that, you add Durant. It, it, it reminds me of like back in the day when I used to, when I got my first pair of Jordans, any speck was on them, I was stopping to clean it off. Now I got like three pair of Jordans, so if something falls on, I'm like, whatever. I got other Jordans, right? That That's the Warriors. It's like, whatever. Steph was terrible in the second quarter, kicking the ball around, missing shots, didn't score. Yeah, we got Kevin Durant. Clay hit a couple shots. It doesn't matter. Steph comes back in third quarter. All right, I'm back, y'all. Let's put this team away. It's just it's it's kind of, it's an embarrassment of riches, and it's incredible how they're making an all-time great player look like I don't have an answer. The Warriors turned the ball over thirteen times in the first half, and they were still leading. <laughs> turned it over four times <laughs> scored, in game one. And scored like seventy points. It was <laughs> scored almost seventy <laughs> points. I mean, that was insane. The the signature play of the game. The highlight of the game was definitely Steph dribbling around like Muggsy Bogues through someone's legs around LeBron James, breaking his ankles a little oh, bit. Oh, you know he wanted that, off. right? Oh, you know he wanted that. And then th- you, I, you heard him talk about it after the game saying, I was, a, I was running, I was like a chicken with my head cut off initially when I got the ball and he was down on the line. But then once he got in front of LeBron, he set him up. And drove around him, made him backpedal, drove around him to his left, and laid it in with his left hand. That was really symbolic to me of sort of that encapsulated the entire game. It was like, it was the moment where you're like, okay, yeah, Steph is healthy, and this is what it looks like, right? But there was, I was talking with Steph about this after the game in the locker room. Oh, yeah. And when, when Steph was, on, when LeBron was on him, like usually he kind of passes the ball and gets a screen to get LeBron off of him. And LeBron kind of got caught in space, and, and he pressured Steph, like, you're not about to get me, right? Like, this is not about to happen. Steph was like, yeah, I could feel him, like, trying to, like, like bully me a little bit. So when he backed it out, in his mind, Steph is like, oh, yeah, remember those blocks last year? <laughs> remember uh, all that? Remember the 3-1 Halloween cookies? Yeah, we got you. Uh, I think Steph won at that moment. And then... Afterwards, if you notice, Steph is standing by LeBron and he's just screaming, like, let's go. And he's screaming, like, with LeBron right there. 
it's like the closest Steph is going to come to like looking at a dude and trash talking. But he, man, he wanted that moment so badly. <laughs> After the game, uh, uh, Sam Cassell on ESPN was talking about how the Cavs just aren't getting shots. I and mean, let's talk about the Cavs a little bit. They're not moving the ball enough. They just can't play isolation basketball against the Warriors. And, you know, here's another thing they can't do. They can't bully the Warriors. And that's an understated thing about this the addition. So we talk about Kevin Durant. You also got to talk about Zaza Pachulia and David West. And Tristan Thompson used to be a bull in a china shop against the Finesse Warriors. And now he's just not. Bogut was just not quick enough to stay with him. And now Pachulia is like Debo and Tristan Thompson. Zaza Pachulia has completely taken him out of the series. And he can't play on the court. Like, he, he only played 21 minutes. He sat the whole second quarter, and they don't know what to do with Tristan because he can't just go around bullying people and getting every rebound or just deep grown man and everybody. The Warriors are just as physical as Cleveland. That, that presents a problem. So that, that, that's an option that they had to slow the game down and play physical that doesn't look like it's there anymore. So yeah, now they just the have most, to run. Yeah, that, that's been the most surprising thing in the series for me, for sure, is that Tristan Thompson is a guy who you would think would match up really well with the Warriors because of his um, ability to defend on the perimeter as a big man on those switches. And he's just been a total non-factor. You'd have to imagine the Cavs will be better when the series shifts back to Cleveland now, that the role players will be better. The guys like maybe Darren Williams can make a goddamn shot. Uh, J.R. Smith? In the My series. Lord. Oh, he's been really bad, too. I forgot about him. Um, but the thing I wanted to ask you about is the Draymond at the podium after game two got upset um, at a question about how he's been able to keep his emotions in check. And you mentioned this at the top of the segment. I really think the only way that the Cavs can get back into the series is if, and maybe it's unfair, but is if Draymond just totally loses his cool and gets kicked out of a game or gets kicked out of multiple games. Like, that is where we're at in this series right now, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's like waiting on, like, it's got to be like, man, if a hurricane hits the stadium, <laughs> like, they might go. <laughs> I th- you know what? Draymond was mad because he feels like, like, I've already shown you guys that I'm not a loose cannon and I can't control it. So why am I still answering this? I think that's when I was asking him about it. He's like, man, what, I have no I have one tech and no flagrants. Uh, if I was really a loose cannon, don't you think I would have like, you know, had one by now? And to be honest, I'm not so sure Draymond in the back of his mind, because he's the most calculated dude I know. Is like all right. I do have four flagrants, right? <laughs> I do, I do, I do have one to work with, you know. And we do have KD, so maybe me missing the game wouldn't be that bad. Well, he, but he said in an interview gonna... <laughs> that he does. He said in an interview that he doesn't regret hitting LeBron in the nuts last year because he, when he stepped over him, he regrets the fact that he says I cost him the series, and yet I would still do it again. And he wants us to think <laughs> he's not a He regrets cannon. the first flagrant. He regrets the first flagrant in Houston that led him to having four. He if he would have hit LeBron man. in the nuts and would have had three flagrants and not been suspended, he'd be like, yeah, let's take that one. <laughs> but it was the it was the first one in Houston that was so silly, and it, it cost him really the game. But heck nah, he don't regret having – he don't regret putting LeBron in check because if LeBron steps over him and he doesn't do anything, 
like now he's a punk and he's getting punked by LeBron. And remember, they're on Nike together. So and they they are actually friends. Maverick Carter, Draymond's great friends with Maverick Carter. Uh, LeBron's been, there's no way he can live that down publicly or privately if he just lets LeBron step over him. So that's worse than being seen as a hothead. It's like getting punked by LeBron. But <laughs> so, so Dray- Draymond did go to the podium. LeBron did not go to the podium last night. And in the scrum in the locker room, he said there was a reason. He didn't say what the reason was. I mean, he's a great talker. I mean, he's honest. He's forthright. He talks in sound bites. He analyzes the game beautifully. He's perfect. What was going on, though? What, what, was, what possible reason could there be for LeBron James not going to the podium? Yeah, I think it's something to do with, his, with the league. And his, this, he's got some kind of gripe or displeasure with the league. Because he, this is the second time he's done hmm. this. At practice, they ha- they also have the same setup. You put like the secondary players at a like a little mini podium around the practice facility, and then the stars go to like the interview room at practice. Yesterday, no, not yesterday. Before we walk in, everybody's waiting for LeBron in the interview room. He's like, "Nope, I'm going to the podium," and then it becomes this crush of media all at this one little table podium trying to get questions in and everybody was mad and the nba was like no lebron we need you in the interview room and he's like no i'm going to the podium and it was like a real big like it was a disaster Hmm. like trying to get a question in so this is this is twice now he's done this and i'm trying to think like what could be the reason i read he he said it's not about wins and losses and it's not because he did it during practice so so this has nothing i read to motivate the team or anything this is not some i read that it was because he was upset that after games they were making him wait like a long time but like the it was he was just annoyed at the mechanics of the whole yeah. setup and he was like i'm just gonna stand oh, by my, i'm just gonna I was, stand by my locker i was hoping he was trying this. to like send some message to his teammates or something but oh you no. hope he was trying to get jr smith to get his life together on the exactly. court like, what, nah, <laughs> it was it's something different it has something to do with the league where he's like i'm not i'm not gonna make things easier for you by going to this interview room i'm gonna make it hard and go to this podium because I'm LeBron. Right, it's got, more along that. We've got our narrative flow here, but last year the Warriors were up. Plus, They were plus 48 after two games. They're plus 41 this year after two games. Tell the people of Cleveland, Marcus, that there's, there's a possibility here. Something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like we said, man, a hurricane could come and take that <laughs> No, so you're, you're, saying the, you're saying the Cavaliers are like that dude mowing his lawn with the tornado behind him? That's, that's who the Cavaliers are. Now, nah, look, I think LeBron will get one game in Cleveland. The question is which one? Uh, I think J.R. Smith is going to make shots. Richard Jefferson is going to make shots. Kyrie, who's been, like, disappointing. Um, not re- He's be- actually been Kyrie, but after last year's finals, he had this hype as a top 10 player when really this is Kyrie, and he looks like Kyrie. So he's due... For one of his games, he'll have two or three big games in the series, and then he'll have three like terrible ones. So he'll probably play well. If they get game three, and now it's 2-1, so all of that pressure is on the Warriors in game four. And we haven't seen them deal with this pressure. They haven't faced at this playoffs. We haven't seen Durant under this pressure. Can they go win a game four on the road that they got to win? Otherwise, then that's the difference. If the series is 2-2 coming back to Oakland, now we got a series. If it's 3-1 coming back to Oakland, now now we need that hurricane. But 
I want to see the Warriors with that kind of pressure because they have not faced it yet. They haven't been challenged like that yet. And maybe that's the only hope. All right. I want to end this by talking about the dynamic uh, along Celebrity Row. So this was more of uh, a thing in game one when it seemed like Duran and Rihanna were really going back and forth. She is a huge LeBron fan. They were you know, looking at each other, chirping at each other. What can you tell us based on your um, you know, deep and abiding relationship with Rihanna? Like, what is she thinking about this? What is Durant thinking? How big of a factor is that relationship going forward? So Rihanna, right, this, this even happened last year where Rihanna showed up at the game. And apparently, like, you know, she's a huge LeBron fan. She's an obnoxious LeBron fan. <laughs> So much so, the the you know the Warriors owners. She bought the tickets from the Warriors owners, and they made her pay like <laughs> like a premium for both <laughs> tickets. They charged they charged her like crazy for what I was told. Uh, and she bought them. Obviously, it's not, it wasn't a big deal to her. But she sat with the Warriors owners and like just rooted for LeBron like crazy, screaming all game. She's doing it again this year in Game One. She's like going crazy, LeBron this, LeBron that all game, and. The Warriors players are like, man, dude, this girl's out of control, right? <laughs> that's, that's what they're thinking of themselves. Like, she, she's wild. She's out of control. She needs to chill. Because, you know, them other celebrities, there's some back and forth, but it's almost like they're all like a family of rich celebrities. So, you know, at the end, they'll all chat. Like, Jay-Z probably root for LeBron, but he'll chat with them. Drake the same way. But Rihanna's like, LeBron, 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 and they're like, "Dude, would she just chill?" And she wouldn't chill. So I think that's what that's what that was about. But speaking of having no chill, Durant tweeted in 2011 that Rihanna was the girl that he would marry of any uh, woman in the world. And in 2009, he said he wanted to bite her butt cheek. Who has no chill, Marcus? Who has no chill? Oh well, Durant is grown now, right? So he, he has grown. <laughs> He was 23 then, and, you know, he was trying to get under her uh, umbrella, and now he's looking at her like, like, look at you. I used to like you. He's, he, look, he looked at her like, you remember that girl in high school you used to like, and then you saw her later? He's like, man, I used to like you. That's how he looked at her, like, what happened to you? I thought you were going to be all that, and now you're rooting for LeBron, and look what I'm doing to LeBron. <laughs> Until he gives her the choke sign like Reggie Miller did to Spike Lee, we don't have a feud. Where is that? Where's where's this? That's all we missing. Maybe that's what it could be. Who's the Cleveland fan who's going to show up at Quicken Loans Arena and just start taunting the Warriors and turn this into a thing? That's the real question. We'll look out for that on Wednesday. Marcus Thompson is a columnist for the Mercury News. He's also the author of the book Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you. I appreciate you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Game four of the Stanley Cup Finals will be played on Monday night in Nashville, Tennessee. The locals are hoping for a repeat of game three, where catfish were thrown on the ice. Noted hockey fans Keith Urban and Nicole Kidman awkwardly celebrated goals. 
and the hometown Predators defeated the Pittsburgh Penguins by a score of five to one to cut the series margin to two games to one. Bruce Arthur of the Toronto Star is covering the sixth straight Stanley Cup finals without a Canadian team. He joins us from a fishmonger in Music Row. Hey, Bruce. Hold on. Let me just put down my guitar. Okay, now we're ready. (laughs) All right, before we get to the actual hockey, let's talk about Nashville. You got your guitar there. Much has been made about the crazy atmosphere in Nashville, how Nashville is a hockey town, and how this is the NHL's dream come true. On the other hand, in your column after Game 3, you quoted a Nashville cop saying, a lot of people have been big Predators fans for a month. Is too much being made of Nashville's love of hockey? Uh, If it is. And, and, and there are a couple little examples where people are saying, like, this is the loudest building I've ever been in, or I can't hear the person next to me talking. And as someone who was sitting not far from a lot of people who were saying that for Game 3, I didn't really find that to be entirely true. But it's awesome. And, it, and like that the police officer, he seemed pretty genuine. Like there were, a lot of these people weren't here a month ago. Like, it's built and built and built and built. But all that really means is that they're here now, right? Because... This franchise, it had struggled for a long time. Ten years ago, the owner came out and said, you know, we got a good team and the lowest revenues in the NHL. It can't work. Tried to sell it to Jim Balsillie, the BlackBerry owner, and couldn't do it. Eventually, he got shuffled off to Minnesota. They brought in local ownership. They've had a lot of subsidies over the years, but this is, this is a success story because this team had never gotten past the second round. They'd never been able to build the memories that, like, every, every sports fan has that time when you're between your, like, between six and ten years old, yeah. where a team grabs you, right, and doesn't let go for life. And maybe that's what's happening here, but, like, the scene is awesome. And it's unlike anything I've seen at a hockey kind of environment. So in 2002, I just found a story about um, the Carolina uh, Hurricanes making the Stanley Cup Finals, and you'd see the same sorts of stories. Hockey honeymoon is on. Mm-hmm. Now, 15 years later, nobody's talking about Raleigh being a— hockey hotbeds. So what happens when we fast forward 15 years from 2017? And if Nashville is once again in the hockey doldrums, are we still going to be talking about how this is a hockey town and this was the start of a renaissance and these are fans that support their team through thick and thin? Well, and I talked to a guy who's a car salesman named Scott Barry. He was wearing a Mexican wrestling mask and a a Nashville Predators styled wrestling belt and a jersey. And one thing he said in the course of our conversation is, this town loves a winner. Like, he's been a fan since day one, but he was looking around going, wow, this town loves a winner like every town. And there's a really strong identity thing happening in Nashville right now. The last five or six years here, a lot more people, a lot more money, a lot more construction, bachelorette parties everywhere you go. Like, you can't (laughs) swing a cat without hitting a bachelorette party. Um, So right now, this is Nashville is ascendant as a town and it's ascending with the team. That's a really good question because, I mean, there are hockey markets like Vancouver this year is a Canadian market. Their team stunk. People stopped going. I don't, there are towns that are immune to that, but I don't think that Nashville as a town is innately immune to having downturns in the future. I would argue that we should praise the rationality of fans who behave in this manner because why waste your money going to see a stinky loser bunch of teams? This is incredibly fun what's going on in Nashville right now. Scream, <laughs> attend, and then if they're bad, stop going. <laughs> <laughs> and that could happen. But it really does feel like the thing is, this, isn't, this hockey market didn't just become a hockey market this year. Like They've been a, a little bit like this. 
for several years now. It's just that now you're getting 50,000 people outside the building in game one because they have a country concert and the bars are going crazy and Broadway's going crazy. It's just, it's just bigger, but there were, the people have been in there for a while. Uh, now, this team, I think it was 2011, needed to hit 14,000 in terms of attendance in order to trigger a clause in the lease to make sure the team stayed here. And when you go in the building, they have this big history section outside the Predators' locker room, and that's in there. Like that, and that was not that long ago. They've received, I think the Tennessean said, about $78 million in, in subsidies right. since 2007. So they, they need, still need help, but maybe this becomes more solid. Because once you've got some, some success to work off of, and this has been a playoff team for many years, like, and these, this is a young team too, they've got a lot of guys, they could be good for a good stretch here. Um, I mean, you look at, you're right, you look at Carolina, and that is now maybe the number one trouble spot in the NHL outside of Phoenix. But right now, Nashville is at least set up for several years of being good. And that, uh, I think it can bake in fans a little more reliably than a one-year run, which is what Carolina has. So one personality that has not been suppressed thus far is P.K. Subban. He was um, one of the NHL's biggest stars going back to Montreal. And the biggest controversy of the final so far is that Subban alleges that Sidney Crosby told him that his Subban's breath smelled. And then Crosby was, you know, issued a denial in the locker room. I was extreme. When I heard that, like, Subban had accused Crosby of saying something, I was very excited. But <laughs> then I was disappointed. Like, my, you're, uh, you know, saying, saying that my breath smells. Nobody's mother was invoked. This seems like an extremely milquetoast controversy. And I just wanted it to get bigger and angrier. Yeah, and the thing is, PK, PK loves getting he loves getting under City's skin, especially. They have a long history of that. But this was this was not his most inspired, probably moment. <laughs> but he kind of because because he went after Sid at the end of Game Three because they rolled him in Game Three, and he went and he chirped him, he chirped him, he chirped him, he grabbed him, he pulled him, and Sidney said something back. And I don't think anything involving breath was involved. I think it was probably more garden level expletives. But like PK Subban basically got Sidney Crosby to have to spend a day talking about P.K. Subban. And part of that is P.K. needs the spotlight. He can't help himself. And part of it is he feels like he can do this stuff and start going a little bit, getting into these silly kind of back-and-forth fun stuff because, honestly, Nashville thinks they're better. They think they're a better team even though they're trailing in the series. And that's why P.K. all of a sudden – had the agency and the ability to start something with Sidney Crosby, even though he's not the main guy playing against Crosby. It's the Yossi Ellis pairing that is. But it's fun. Like, more personality in hockey, I'm all for. And P.K. Subban is right now one of the only personalities there is. Uh, You wrote over the weekend that despite trailing in the series, Nashville feels like it's in the lead. And there are certainly signs of that. A big one is that the Predators have pretty much neutralized Pittsburgh's two stars, Sidney Crosby and Yevgeny Malkin, neither of whom had a shot in Game 3. The Predators are taking more shots. They're dominating possession. And Pittsburgh's defense has not exactly been uh, reliable, speedy, quick, authoritative. Yeah, this series is funny because Pittsburgh shouldn't be here. They lost their number one defenseman, Chris Letang, halfway through the season. He is basically like 80 to 90% of Eric Carlson. 
he like he he does so much for them. Plays half the game, carries the puck, starts the play. So what they've got left is a bunch of guys who have been slotted up, and it's amazing that they got through. Well, I think they were better than Columbus. Washington probably should have beaten them, except for the demons writhing around in Washington's head from all the past playoff failure. And then Ottawa, when they got them in the conference final, Ottawa isn't that good a team outside of Carlson, who was hurt. So this Pittsburgh team is vulnerable, and Nashville is exploiting it ruthlessly. They've got four defensemen who would be number one defensemen in the Pittsburgh system and in almost any system, in P.K. Subban, Roman Yossi, Ryan Ellis, and Matthias Ekholm. And those guys, like they lost their number one center during this playoff run in Ryan Johansson. And they are possession-wise a monster. And so you watch the Pittsburgh defensemen when they go back to get a puck. And I, I wrote it, I think. It's like watching someone in a 94 Corolla floor it. Like they just can't get there. They're not fast enough. They don't have enough passing ability. And that's why Crosby and Malkin, one, they're dealing with extraordinary defense pairs. But two, they have nobody to get them to puck in the first place. So Crosby was diagnosed with a concussion earlier in the playoffs um, in the Penguin series with the Capitals. He took another hit that I think was not officially diagnosed as a concussion. And you were critical of the NHL's protocol there and the way that he was treated and examined. So how has he looked so far in this series? And based on the columns you've written, it seems like you and a lot of other folks are watching him skate through gritted teeth and thinking about what effects he might suffer years down the line based on the treatment he's received from other players on the ice and the treatment he's received from the commissioner's office. Well, and the thing is, they did follow the protocol. When he hit the boards, I think it was game five of the Washington series, if I remember. I think it was but game six. Game six. Okay, there you go. So he hits the boards hard. Um, he'd already had the cross-check in the face from Matty Niskanen. Now, there were some people who said that maybe that was, that was misdiagnosed as a concussion. We don't know. There's a real kind of gray area there. They technically followed the protocol pretty much to a T when he fell into the boards, except that he got up a little slowly, they let him play another shift, and then they looked at him in intermission, and team doctors cleared him. The thing with Crosby, like Crosby hasn't lived in the era of Eric Lindros, where predatory head hits were everything in the game. And, I mean, Lindros, people went after him. Like, they, people tried to knock, to cut him down to size. Because they ex- well, they also exploited the fact that he had, they knew he was, he was susceptible. Yes. And with Crosby, it hasn't really been that. It's been more accidents. It's been a lot, but it's been a lot of accidents. Um, he missed most of two years with concussions. Um, and I, I felt the same way. I felt actually probably even more fraught watching Clark MacArthur of the Ottawa Senators, who'd had four concussions in 18 months, hadn't played in two years, came back and played through the playoffs of the Ottawa Senators. Great guy, wonderful guy. We all want Clark to be well. This isn't quite like football. Like football makes hockey look a lot better. But it feels like that that Crosby episode, again, the protocol was followed. The question is, do they need better protocol? Do they need more caution? And it's worked out because there's been nothing diagnosed. People who watched Crosby more closely than I had to that point in the playoffs, people much closer to him, said that he didn't quite look right for a little bit. And I think he's now, at some time in the conference final, Crosby became like Crosby again. He's choosing to do this. There have been people in the past who have been near Crosby who have told him that maybe he shouldn't do this anymore. Uh, that has happened. 
but Crosby is one again. He's one of those guys who needs this, and he's a generational player. I don't think we appreciate him enough. And yeah, you do worry. You do worry about what's going to happen. Yeah. But that's con- that's the life of contact sports now because we know. I don't think it's helping that Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL and the league itself in litigation, has taken what really feels like a very cavalier attitude toward head injuries and uh, the league's culpability there. And I think that's a, a larger issue for the NHL, the way it's perceived more broadly. You uh, said after... Uh, Bettman's State of the League news conference last week that the NHL is mired in the land of the uninspired, a league whose vision remains so limited. Where do you think that comes from, and what are the central issues that the league needs to address? I think there's a few. Like in terms of concussions, uh, Gary Gary acts like a guy who's facing a class action lawsuit, which he right. is. Uh, and every commissioner kind of does this. He's just a little inartful about it, saying there's no link between neurological diseases and hockey. And you know what? That's probably going to be proven to be untrue, but we're going to see. Um, the league's done some good things. They've, they've, they've gotten headshots out of the game in terms of the intentional ones, I think, mostly. Three-on-three overtime is really fun. Scoring went up a little bit this year. They made goalie, pad, goalie equipment a little smaller. It's still, like, this year was still one of the lowest, one of the 13 lowest-scoring years since 1956, if I remember. Trades happen, but they're very rare. The hard salary cap has made trading very difficult. Free agency, same thing. These are, like... These are holidays in Canada. I, I work a little bit for TSN. We're on the air from like some years, eight in the morning until six at night on free agency day and trade deadline day. And those days have become less and less and less fun. Players' personalities were ruthlessly kind of suppressed or unencouraged. Not quite discouraged, but not encouraged. And the league in general, like I look at hockey and I go, if the game were more entertaining, if it was easier to score, and that there's a million, we, can, we could talk for hours about that. Then between that and personality and movement in the league, like what do you want from your sport? What do you want? You want competitive balance and you want great teams and you want great players to be able to be great. The NHL kind of scores a C plus on too many of these for me. So NHL players are not going to be participating in the 2018 Olympics, which gets at the issues that you were um, just talking about, Bruce. It seems like a no-brainer for the NHL. This is the biggest showcase, you could argue, for hockey that exists, bigger even than the Stanley Cup Finals. It seems like an enormous error on the part of uh, Batman and the league. Yeah, and it's just... It's just kind of a bummer, right? Like, and I know the games are going to be in the middle of the night and they've got to go to South Korea. And the IOC picked this fight absolutely. And the players' union could have been a little better. But at the end, it was the league's decision not to go. And it just, again, it shows a lack of vision and a lack of ambition almost. It's, it's just a little bit of small-minded thinking. Because, okay, yeah, they want to become big in China. Because China, like the broadcast on Chinese television being watched by like 20 million people a night. And, I mean, those Olympics will be broadcast in China. It's another window to get there. It's another building block of getting there. But because of a fight between Rene Fussell and, and Gary Bettman, Rene Fussell is the head of the IIHF, International Hockey Federation, and because the owners don't really want to go and they've been grumbling about it for a while, it's just, this is hockey. Like, they, they think smaller rather than bigger. Like, and the Olympics... Yeah, middle-of-the-night games, all that. But hockey fans love the Olympics. It's the only place you really get best-on-best best that feels like best-on-best. Best. The world Cup. Non-hockey fans love the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, but, the, like, they did the World Cup 
in September, make a lot of money, a best-on-best best situation, a little gimmicky, it didn't feel the same. And the players didn't think it felt the same. Maybe it will one day. But right now, the Olympics is something kind of you can't really replace. And at this point, I'm not sure that they're going to be able to replace it with the World Cup for a very long time. Bruce Arthur is off to buy a catfish, which he will jam down his shorts and bring into the arena tonight. He's a columnist for the Toronto Star. Bruce, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On Wednesday night at City Field in Queens, the mascot of the New York Mets extended a puffy white finger, not his middle finger, mind you, because he only has four on each of his oversized mitts, and pointed it at the direction of some yahoos in the stands. This act of mascotly aggression led to the firing of the man inside the Mr. Met costume, and it led the team to issue an official statement that read in full, we apologize for the inappropriate action of this employee. We do not condone this type of behavior. We are dealing with this matter internally. As you might predict, this uh, statement became a meme and was shown on Twitter alongside, for example, Carlos Beltran taking a strike three against Adam Wainwright in the National League Championship Series. If you're like me, you're imagining an internal meeting between the general manager and a figure with a baseball for a head, a baseball that is, in fact, so large that it does not fit through the doorframe of a conventional office. Uh, So what do we know about this figure with the large baseball for a head? Writing in the New York Times mere weeks before this incident, Sadie Stein noted that his official Mets biography says he can't talk because he shouted himself hoarse, rooting for his team. Stein added, it can't help that he has a gigantic baseball for a head, that his mouth is permanently fixed in a silent grin or scream. She goes on to write about meeting Mr. Met in 2006 while wearing an I Heart Mr. Met t-shirt, an event at which she held hands with the mascot with the enormous baseball for a head. I remember he pointed at me, then at himself. He indicated in American Sign Language that he loved me too. And love is not logical. Sadie Stein, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we knew from your piece, those of us who had read it, that Mr. Matt was familiar with uh, American Sign Language. That was good going into this incident. Uh, I want you to tell us whether um, Mr. Matt giving the finger to a fan changed your view of this mascot's interior life. Not at all. On the contrary, I feel it, it gives him even more dimension. And what I think is that if he's capable of this kind of rage, it's all the more impressive that he's kept it in check for this many years. Yeah, I agree. And and I think you you kind of telegraphed where Mr. Met was heading in your piece. You wrote that he strides around the field free of resentment, existing only to be used and abused and to cheerily support his tormentors. I mean, who wouldn't lash out eventually? Exactly. I think it would be sinister if he never did, to tell you the truth. I think it would show an inhuman sort of control, which I, for one, would not find relatable at all. (laughs) You also write in your piece about the existence of a partner for Mr. Matt 
a woman who is seen occasionally. I knew a little bit about her existence. Mrs. Met sometimes, Lady Met. Well, she started as Lady Met. <laughs> yes. Lady Met was his distaff counterpart in the 60s, and she was had a pretty snappy little uniform with kind of a flip hairdo and a little mini skirt. And they faced her out at a certain point. And there's some discussion and some ambiguity about the identity of the current Lady Matt and indeed of the current Mr. Matt, whether he is the son of the original Mr. Matt and the new Lady Matt is his daughter-in-law or whether this is a a new generation, whether it's his mom, whether it's all very shrouded in mystery. But yeah, now there is a Lady Matt on the scene again who also appears at games and shoots T-shirts and dances around. You refer to Mr. Met's Garbo-like mystique, <laughs> and this is not something that's unique to the Mets baseball-headed mascot. Um, these characters that we see roaming around stadia across the land, there's something unknowable about them. They're mute. They seem, as you noted, to be either locked into some sort of permanent state of enforced servitude? Or, you know, are they screaming silently inside? Or are they really happy? And and we ask our children to kind of embrace and understand these creatures. That seems like odd and perverse to me when they're so unknowable. Or maybe it's that children just don't ask questions and, and us adults have too many. It is perverse, but at the same time, isn't the nature of being a fan perverse and enigmatic? And in a way, they're a good avatar for that, I think. Mr. Met, you know, he's New York. There have yeah. been, been two, count them, two memoirs <laughs> written by former Mr. Mets. Um, Mr.'s Met, I believe, is mes- correct. Messer's Met. <laughs> Messer's Met. One was by A.J. Mass uh, more, uh, pretty recently. Yes, it's hot in here. The other was, uh, was written a little earlier than that. It was by the original Mr. Met, Dan Riley, who was on the team's ticket staff. His book is called The Original Mr. Met Remembers When the Miracle Began. Um, you know, Mr. Met was due for a fall here. Let's be honest. I mean, this is a little bit there's some arrogance. There's there's a little bit of uh, self-aggrandizement, which is understandable given the size of Mr. Met's head. It is pretty big. Um, do you think Mr. Met, the concept, is due for a fall? Do you think the Mets should go back to their original mascot, Homer the Beagle? I think there's a reason Mr. Met has endured as long as he has. And, I mean, if you look at the Earl Morris film, uh, Being Mr. Met, which is about A.J. Mass. He really talks about kind of the difficulty of assimilating to the non-mascot world after you doff the, the Mets hat, and in his case, after he was fired by the organization, and how it really um, is, is difficult to establish your human identity. So I think um, these memoirs speak as much to that and, and to the importance of the character as they do to any sense of inflated ego. I think the position of, of any mascot involves taking so much abuse that when you come out, you feel a need to assert yourself uh, as an individual. But, but you're so torn because you're so identified with that. And being a player on a team and being able to go into the stands and being able to interact with celebrities and, 
and, you know, act like a professional athlete without any of the attainments, physical attainments. And I think that's very hard to give up in certain ways, but very complicated. Oh, my God. You're a total mascot apologist. (laughs) (laughs) I am. I have doubled down in my support of Mr. Matt in light of this. I just feel so bad for him. I feel terrible for the guy who lost his job. Um, I don't understand why people heckle him. You know, I had a very pleasant experience with him, but I, too, was, was very civil. It was... We were star-crossed, you know? Were you, were, so you, I, were you a drunk 25-year-old guy at the time? I was so... <laughs> it was 10 in the morning. I was dead sober. This is a shirt that I had had um, custom-made at Neighborhoodies back <laughs> before you could buy them ready-made. Um, and I had had it for a while. I didn't have it made for this occasion, but this was obviously a, a great excuse to wear it. So this was... was of real and true love. And I was with my brother who has a Mr. Matt tattoo on his upper arm. So together, um, I think he, he could see that we were diehard. So the New York Post has probably done the best reporting on this. They had an anonymous fan who was on the scene who said the fans were cursing at Mr. Met with the F word and saying derogatory things about Mr. Met's mom. Which, I know who, if you if you read into it, is Lady Matt. The the shit goes deep. Um, yeah, exactly. It triggered something that recently happened. The anonymous fan said it was his breaking point. Yahoo also spoke to a bunch of anonymous former mascots mm-hmm. who talked about the indignities uh, of the job. Oh, AJ Moss, who works for ESPN now, uh, had a little post on, on ESPN saying, I've been there. I've had beers poured on me. I've had drunken fans attack me from behind in an attempt to knock me to the ground. And when the Mets were losing big, I was on the receiving end of many four-letter words that weren't M-E-T-S. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say, is that the Mets are having a really bad year. And rough. And if Mr. Matt is the, is the ultimate fan, and he is, um, isn't he all of us in these moments? I mean, he's, he's, that was a really hard loss that particular night. It's been a really rough couple of months. The bullpen's falling apart. I mean, who doesn't feel that way? I agree. I know he's for the kids. He can't do that. But I, I hate to see anyone fired essentially for caring too much. So there are only a couple of jobs like this that I can think of where, it's integral to the profession to have people harass you and not break character. Guard at Buckingham Palace mm-hmm. would be another one. Mm-hmm. And it's just innate to the profession that no matter what happens to you, no matter what befalls you, you know, I guess like birthday party clown would be another one. Any, <laughs> they all involve costumes and drunk people and or children. And Mary Roach wrote in 2002 for Sports Illustrated, she's a great writer, she went to mascot school about the cardinal rules, never take off your head in public. This causes psychic meltdowns among very young children. Traumatic. Never talk, never mess with a woman's hair. And don't mess with the purse, lest the owner decide the $20 has gone missing and blame you. That would be the four finger discount. I mean, what you say is so true about about the Buckingham Palace guards and stuff, and that's not really 
a trait that we see a lot in modern society or, or even that's particularly respected, really. We're encouraged to express our emotions, to talk, to emote, not to keep things bottled up inside. So in some ways, these mascots are ambassadors of another time for good and ill. And um, maybe his falling apart was, was another crack in um, the walls of, of tradition and not necessarily a bad thing. Sadie Stein is the owner of a custom-made I Heart Mr. Met uh, sweatshirt. Is it, Sadie? I have both a sweatshirt and a T-shirt, yes. <laughs> she wrote a letter of recommendation for Mr. Met. You can find it online and in the New York Times Magazine. Sadie Stein, thank you so much for joining us and for your undying love and support of a mascot with a baseball for a head in uh, his darkest hour. Thank you for letting me defend him. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for After Balls, and we're going to get to Deadspin's ranking of uh, North American sports team mascots in our bonus segment. But as I was perusing that list, there was one name, one singular name that stuck out to me, and that is Stanley C. Panther, which is the Florida Panthers mascot. I love any mascot with a middle initial, and just the name Stanley C. Panther Fills my heart with joy. You know who is not filled with joy in his heart, though? Stanley C. Panther. The man playing Stanley sued the Panthers franchise, alleging uh, that when he returned from a medical leave, he was fired. Stefan, what is your Stanley C. Panther? Well, a couple of weeks ago, pitcher Zach Grinke of Arizona struck out White Sox second baseman Yolmer Sanchez. Let's listen to the call. Got him. A new season high. An Ephus curveball at 65 is strikeout number 12. Uh, Major League Baseball tweeted the clip and said, yeah, Zach got you with the Ephus. Under pitch type, the Arizona scoreboard said Ephus. Here are some headlines about the pitch. Zach Grinke uses glorious Ephus pitch to record 12th strikeout and win. Zach Grinke goes to Ephus versus White Sox. Zach Grinke busted out the Ephus pitch in last night's win. There's a six-minute collection on YouTube titled MLB Ephus Pitches with a dozen or so clips. Contemporary pitchers in this compilation include Alfredo Simone, Carlos Villanueva, Henderson Alvarez, Rich Hill, and Odrisamer de España. 
The announcers there also credit the pitchers with having thrown EFIS pitches. Clayton Kershaw was credited with unveiling one last year. El Duque Orlando Hernandez allegedly threw an EFIS. Vincente Padilla was said to throw it more than anyone. But go look at the videos. These aren't EFIS pitches. They are slow curves or change-ups. Some of them don't even get higher than the batter's head. To me and to other right-thinking people, an EFIS is a crazy high arcing slow lob, like 15 or 20 feet off of the ground. The EFIS isn't designed just to cross up a batter like an off-speed pitch. It's designed to freak the batter out, to get him to swing as hard as he can. Baseball historians John Thorne and John Hallway have traced the big slow lob to a guy named Bill Phillips in 1890. The original EFIS was thrown by Rip Sewell of the Pirates in the early 1940s. It sailed as high as 25 feet in the air and came at the hitter with backspin. Legend has it that a teammate of Sewell's asked about the pitch, said, EFIS ain't nothing, and that's a nothing pitch. People have theorized that he was referring to EFIS, the Hebrew word for zero. Right, Bill Lee threw what he called a leafus or space ball for the Red Sox. Here he is throwing one to Tony Perez in game seven of the 1975 World Series. There's his blooper pitch. There it is. A high drive. He's waiting for that one. That one is gone over everything. Perez timed that blooper pitch and slammed it over the screen out in the Lansdowne Street. And now we have another one-run ball game in this World Series. That was a tape measure home run as the Cincinnati fans come. All right, notice how Kurt Gowdy doesn't call it an EFIS pitch. He calls it a blooper pitch because it wasn't an EFIS pitch. It didn't get very high off the ground. So who has thrown a true EFIS post-Rip Sewell? Well, Dave LaRoche, who pitched for 14 years in the majors, definitely threw one. His pitch was called La Lob. It sailed like 15 feet off the ground. I highly recommend the video of LaRoche, then with the Yankees, striking out Gorman Thomas in 1981. Kaz Tadano, who pitched briefly for Cleveland in the 2000s, occasionally threw a crazy high pitch, like 25 feet in the air, in the minor leagues and in Japan. Another guy who had a true EFIS pitch was Steve Hamilton. He was a 6'7 lefty for the Yankees in the 60s and early 70s. His pitch was called the Folly Floater. Here's Hamilton pitching to Tony Horton of the Tigers in 1970. And it's, of course, Yankees broadcaster Phil Rizzuto on the call. actually crawls into the dugout. It was great. Uh, Jonah Carey wrote about the EFIS in 2015, and I am happy to say that he is with me on this, as is baseball writer Rob Nyer, who in Carey's piece says the death of the real EFIS, not the great inflation slow curve EFIS, is a casualty of the conservatism and tight assery of modern pro sports. These days, Nyer says, nobody really wants to put on a show or look a little foolish. What happens instead is that we treat something barely out of the ordinary a slow curve as something truly remarkable, an EFIS. Why? 
because the words sound silly and we want to believe that weird stuff is still happening in sports. I'm all for the evolution of meanings and language, but the dumbing down of the ethos is just too much. Josh, what's your Stanley C. Panther? The French Open has been very emotional thus far in its first week. American Steve Johnson made it to the third round. Uh, he won his second round match against uh, a really good young player named Borna Korik. He fell to the ground when he won, collapsed in tears uh, when he won the tiebreaker in the fourth set. His father, Steve Johnson Sr., had just died recently. Steve Sr. was the longtime tennis coach at USC, had taught his son the game, and it was really moving and meaningful to see Steve Johnson react in that way and just be so human in that moment. Meanwhile, Borna Korek was smashing his racket on the other side of the court immediately upon losing the match as Johnson is having this extremely deep welling emotion come up. He just keeps smashing the racket. Destroyed that racket. Smashing it and smashing. Smash, 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 smash. And it just and even after it was clear what was going on, he just it just kept going. It was really odd and uncomfortable. So that happened. And then another emotional moment uh, came in a match between Juan Martin Del Potro from Argentina and Nicolas Almagro, who is from Spain. They were both suffering physically during this match, but Almagro eventually had to retire. He had uh, trouble with his knee. And Almagro was in a kind of distress that I cannot recall ever hearing from an athlete during a sporting event. Let's listen to a clip. A left knee injury. Oh, boy. Oh, Nico. Oh, Nico. So that was pretty damn brutal. And Mary Carrillo was the announcer on the call, and she was extremely sensitive. I would like to have Mary Carrillo, if anyone, narrate a moment that leaves me with racking, heaving sobs. But you know who I would also like to be there is Juan Martin Del Potro. He went across the net. He did not smash his – he didn't even smash his racket because the natural you know, feeling and emotion that a tennis player gets when another guy is uh, – uh, crying on the other side of the court. Said, I want to smash my racket. Smash, smash, smash. He also just won the match. He did just win, he did just win the match. So there's a little bit of a different context. But Del Potro goes to the other side of the court. He gets down on the ground and just starts petting him, Almagro, and soothing him. And then they go, you know, and sit on the chairs on the side of the court. And Almagro is just devastated. And Del Potro just doesn't leave his side. He puts his arm around him. He whispers in his ear. He comforts him. After the match, Del Potro said, I tried to, I don't know, tried to find good words for that moment. I told him to try to be calm, and I told him to think about his family, his baby. Del Potro has gone through a huge amount of injury trouble himself. He's had major wrist problems, and he spent years trying to come back in the sport, and so he understands what Almagro is going through. He won the 2009 U.S. Open, and he's just only recently 
gotten even close to coming back to that form. He still struggles with his backhand, and I don't think he'll ever be as good as he was in 2009. But Del Potro is a player that every other player and every fan of the sport loves and roots for, and he just hugs the shit out of everyone. It's not just Almagro. March 2017, Delpo hugs a lines person during a loss to Novak Djokovic at Indian Wells. And you know what he'd done right before he hugged Novak Djokovic? He'd hit an errant shot, and he raised his racket there, and he swiped it down in anger, but he stopped himself before he could smash the racket. And instead, he used that energy to embrace a lines person. He turned it into love, 40 love. Um, and he'd actually done the exact same move Jerry Nathan wrote about uh, Delpo uh, for Deadspin and noted that like years before he had done that at Indian Wells, at the Aussie Open, he had hit an Aaron shot, gone to kind of maybe smash his racket in anger, stopped himself, and then gone to hug a lines person. This is the man's signature move. He hugged Djokovic at the net at the Olympics when he won. He hugged uh, a ball girl who was hit by a serve at the Davis Cup in November 2016. If you do a Getty image search of Juan Martin Del Potro hug, it will just wrap you in a warm, loving embrace that'll just make you feel warm and cuddly all day long. It's my recommended Getty image search of the day. Be hugged virtually by Juan Martin Del Potro. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. I'm going to continue my plea from last week. Please subscribe to the show and iTunes. The show is called Hang Up and Listen. And please leave us a comment and a rating if you haven't done so. It'll encourage other people to listen to the podcast, he said greedily. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.